0: Karen Bodine never did stray far from home. Even after she was grown and had three children of her own, she wasn't in a hurry to leave the community near Tumwater where she grew up, where she'd lived with her parents and her big brother Greg, a tight-knit family that Karen and her kids could always count on. In the fall of 2006, Karen's oldest was starting her senior year in high school, her youngest just starting middle school. She'd broken up with their father, who turned out to be more interested in partying than parenting, and had taken her little family back home to live with her parents. They were short on money, but never short on love. Karen would take every opportunity to make her kids feel special, leaving little notes in their backpacks and filling their home with laughter. But then, Karen met a new beau, She started staying at his apartment nearby. Her children stayed with their grandparents, but their bond with their mother remained strong. On one Friday in January, her daughter Carly stopped by after school, as she often did. They chatted, shared a few laughs, before Carly got up to leave. Karen didn't want her to go. She never did. Just five more minutes, she begged. Just five more minutes. But Carly had places to go, and so much on her teenage mind. She'd see her mother again soon. Karen wasn't going anywhere. At least that was the plan. But that night, Karen and her boyfriend had a fight. Not just an argument, but a knockdown, down drag-out battle that ended with police at their front door and Karen moving out. But she didn't go back home. Maybe it was embarrassment over another failed relationship. Maybe she just preferred the comfort of her friends. Karen spent that weekend looking for a place to land. By Sunday, she was out of options and found herself calling home, looking for help, trying to reach her parents, or Carly, her oldest. But the phones just kept ringing. That's how Karen found herself wandering down a residential street in Lacey. It was cold and she didn't have a warm coat. A neighbor noticed Karen and was worried about her, so they called police. An officer stopped to see how she was doing. Karen waved them off. She was fine, she said. Just thinking, walking, trying to clear her head. But the officer wouldn't let it go. He couldn't leave this young woman out in the cold as day was turning into night. He convinced her to go to a women's shelter where she could warm her bones until she decided what to do next. At least that's what could have happened, what might have happened had Karen not been so persistent, had the officer not been so easy to give up. Instead, Karen wandered off into the night, never to be seen alive again.
1: It's a tragedy. If she would have had a place to go that was safe where she could have been taken care of, housing would have probably made the difference for her at least that weekend.
0: It was just hours later, early on Monday morning, when Karen's body would be found, naked and posed along a county road nearly 30 miles from her hometown. I literally sank to my knees and was in shock and just laid in the
2: mud for a minute. I'm like, what? What? Like, I just talked to
0: her the other day. Like, how is this? No, no. News reports declared the body of a transient and suspected drug addict had been dumped, and Karen's murder quickly fell off the radar. It felt like nobody cared. Like nobody saw Karen for who she really was. It ripped our family apart. She was
2: stolen from us. And my grandma is not doing well. Her health is not doing well. And I'm so scared that she's gonna die without having the peace
0: of mind of just knowing what happened to her daughter. But with a new investigator on the case and a new effort to rekindle public interest, could they finally answer that burning question? Who killed Karen Bodine? I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is the scene of the crime.
3: Kim, those cuts from Karen Bodine's now adult daughter, it just makes your heart feel like you just got stabbed, right? Yeah. And I want to first off start, though, by before we dive into this case, to really thank our listeners. You know, we dropped our first episode of this podcast in January 2020. And then, of course, as everybody knows, you know, COVID hit and, you know, our plans. We were like, well, <laughs> I guess we're not doing the podcast. But because of all of you guys listening to our podcast, recommending our podcast and supporting us, we had Karen's daughter, Carly, reach out to us because a friend had referred her to our podcast and said, you know, Kim and Carolyn Will do a great job of telling your story, and that's one of the reasons why we wanted to do the podcast. Mm-hmm. And so, thank you, Carly, for reaching out to us. And you know, hopefully, with so many citizen slews out there, you know, that's her hope is to not only try to get justice for her family and for her mother, but also for people to see her mom as a person, as a mother, daughter, sister, friend, and not a victim, and certainly not a transient or drug addict, which was what what was how she was described when this originally when she was murdered.
0: And it's true. She did have drug addiction issues, but she wasn't homeless. She just happened to be out that night because she was in between homes, let's say. But, you know, when when someone is viewed in a certain light, when they're, you know, whether it's because they are a sex worker or prostitute or whether it's because they are a drug addict or transient, that can often change the outcome of the investigation. And in a way, I think you can't really blame investigators because when you have so many cases and some of them are more easy to see leads than others, it's easy to, you know, fall into the ones that are easier to solve. That are more obvious.
3: Yeah. And I think in this case, you know, as as I'm sure you will describe, they didn't just drop the ball on this one. It
0: just didn't go anywhere. From the beginning. From the it beginning. Just never, yeah. So let's go back to the beginning. Karen's kids are all adults now, as we mentioned. Carly, the oldest, spearheading this effort to get her mom's murder solved. And it started when she was just graduating high school herself. She says she doesn't have any illusions about who her mom was. She knows she abused drugs on and off over the years, starting when she was in high school and her older brother got into a car accident that nearly killed him. Greg,
2: he was in college on the other side of the mountains. He was coming home, I think, for Christmas vacation or something. And he got a really, really, really bad car wreck. He was in a coma for months and months and months. And, and I think that's when my mom really started to, like, start using drugs because I think it was like a coping thing. And she was left alone, too.
0: So Karen's parents would spend days at a time away from home at the hospital with Greg They were trying to do the kind thing for their daughter. They didn't want to burden Karen with seeing her brother like that. So they would leave her home alone. I mean, she was 17. She was nearly an adult, but she was still just a kid. And she was just as worried about her brother as her parents were. But she didn't have anyone to turn to except her friends who many of them would drink and do drugs. As most of, you know, as most, many teenagers as, do. As I
3: can attest, <laughs> and I'm sure you can too. And I was actually looking a little into this, that according to mentalhealth.org, a traumatic event can be defined as experiences that put either a person or someone close to them at risk of serious harm or death. And the first event that was listed was a road accident. And it's just being a teen and just trying to figure your world out and then having this like horrific accident with your brother it must have been like they're saying you know this huge traumatic event and who knows if that's what
0: started her going down the path. But I mean, Well, it sounds like it. I mean, at first they say she was, you know, having a few drinks to numb the pain. Then she started using marijuana. And before long, it was cocaine and other drugs. Greg eventually got well enough to leave the hospital. But Carly says he never really got back to being his old self. His injuries were so severe that he still suffers from physical and mental disabilities to this day. And just as Karen was graduating high school, she found out she was pregnant with Carly, who would be the first of her three children. I have two younger siblings as
2: well, all the same father. But at times, it was a really, really, really good relationship. And then it was really not the best. Like, they would be fighting and arguing and using drugs. And I I think it was because of the drugs. Now, my dad is not the best person. Like, right now, he's in prison for drugs and fraud. So... I think he was a really bad influence. No, I know he was a really bad influence on her.
0: Carly says her dad would stay out all night partying with his friends, leaving mom home alone with the kids. But she says it never felt like an unhappy home. Her mom was so loving, always made her feel so special. Carly says while her mom battled addiction over the years, she would have long periods of sobriety, years at a time. And that's the mom that she remembers. Well, looking back at pictures now, I
2: always had my hair done and my makeup done and my nails done, and I loved it. I loved going through my mom's purse and finding, ooh, this is a new lipstick. You didn't have this one yesterday. And then we'd put it on together or we'd paint our nails together and then like, she loved braiding my hair and everything but then she let me play with her hair even though i didn't know what the heck i was doing she made it seem like it was the most beautiful thing ever when i was done no matter what her problems were her kids were everything to her i couldn't ask for a better moment even though everything that happened
0: the genuine love that was there was just amazing after years of trying to make it work with carly's dad Karen ended that relationship. She took the kids, moved back home to live with her parents. But there were still times when she was drawn back into drugs. Carly says it was a lifelong battle that she fought while also doing her best to take care of her kids, even when she was using. Eventually, my grandparents
2: ended up adopting us, but it was like an open adoption. Like, my mom could come see us whenever, and when my mom was doing well and had her own house or anything, we would oftentimes go over there and stay with her. And then on the weekends, we would go see my dad's grandparents, which were close to them, too. I love my Nana.
0: So despite the addiction that was haunting all of them, it sounds like Carly and her siblings had a really secure, loving childhood surrounded by lots of family, grandparents on both sides, and a mom who never stopped trying to win that battle with addiction. In early 2007, Karen was living with a new boyfriend in Lacey, just a few miles down the road from her parents and her children. Carly was in her senior year of high school and Karen's youngest had just started middle school. Carly says she was still really close to her mom, talked to her on a daily basis, and often would stop by after school on her way home just to hang out, hear her mom laugh, and share some stories. It was a Friday, January 19th, when Carly would see her mom for the last time. She'd stopped by the apartment and was getting ready to leave when her mom asked her to stay for a few more minutes. Apparently, this was kind of her mom's routine. She would always say, just five more minutes. Come on, just five more minutes. Like she always did. But... You know, Carly's a teen. She's got places to go, people to see. She she had to get out of there. Later that night, Karen and her boyfriend got into a fight. Things got physical. The police were called out. And they wouldn't leave until either Karen or her boyfriend left the apartment. The apartment was in her boyfriend's name. So, of course, Karen was the one who had to go. She called her mom to ask for a ride. But being a busy real estate agent, her mom was in a meeting. So She asked Karen if she could call her back. Karen said, "Eh, that's okay. I'll just go to a friend's house for the night. That was the last time her family would speak with her. Early Monday morning, the gruesome discovery was made. Karen's body had been left naked and posed just off a rural road at the entrance of a gravel yard nearly 30 miles away from
1: home. She's found without much around her, just her body. And so it's pretty clear to them that it's a dump site, not the initial crime scene. And investigations start at that point even trying to identify who she was because she didn't have any identification with her.
0: That's Detective Mickey Hamilton with the Thurston County Sheriff's Office. He says the way that Kieran was left, posed with no clothing, but a ligature still around her neck, seemed to be sending some kind of message. She had no wallet, no other personal items. She was just lying on the ground and had her head resting on an abandoned
1: car seat. I don't know if they were trying to make a statement or if it was out of respect for Karen that they wanted her to be found. That's the other thing is odd about this is unless she was already naked at the time she was murdered and then they just didn't take the time to clothe her or cover her. It it, it seems contradictory in the fact that, again, she's she's dumped here. She's posed a certain way. What message they're trying to send, I'm not sure.
0: Now, this all happened before Detective Hamilton actually came to work in Thurston County. He was working at the time in Arizona. When he moved to Washington and started training in Thurston County, the murder of Karen Bodine was one of the first cases he was told about. The area where her body was found was known to be a dumping site, not just for bodies, but for cars that had been stolen and stripped, for tons of garbage or other things related to criminal activity. They said he should just keep an eye on this area. They knew it was a dumping site. So he did. And Karen's murder was never far from his thoughts.
1: I do drive by that area frequently because that is an area I was assigned to work for a a long part of my career in patrol. And so I would always keep an eye on that area and try to catch somebody coming back to the scene for memorial reasons or just some way that we could get a lead on this case.
0: Carly says before Detective Hamilton took over the investigation, her mom's case was going nowhere. It was like the community had written her mom off as a drug addict and a transient, and it just wasn't a high priority for anyone.
2: My mom was an addict, but it was off and on. Like she would go years and years and years with being clean and normal and everything. But you know, when she died, she wasn't doing the best. And so the police, they just didn't give two hex, like whatever. And so I think that's really part of what the problem was too. And the detective, original detective, was about to retire. So I really he didn't put a lot of work into it it's not really known but like there was more than one occasion where I was at someone's house and I was questioning them and an unmarked cop car comes up and they're mosing up questioning, starting
0: questioning them. It's like, how did I get there first? How did I, Yeah, it was first. More more than once. So Carly was dogged in trying to figure out what happened to her mom. And, you know, it's a relatively small town, Lacey and the area around Lacey. You know, it's an area right outside of Olympia. Not quite rural, but on the edge of rural. And so she would just talk to people and talk to people that her mom knew and ask, you know, hey, did you see Karen that night? Do you have any idea where she might have gone? And so she just kept talking to people and asking questions, and she would often show up at places where the cops hadn't even been yet, before the detectives even had a chance to ask their questions, because she was so determined to find out what happened to her mom.
3: Carly is just amazing, the fact that she's going and investigating on her mom's behalf so many—I mean, it makes me want to cry because the devotion— And anybody who would say, oh, she was a transient, she was a drug addict or whatever, it just so diminishes what she gave to
0: these children who all these years later are still looking. Yeah. And I mean, think about Carly, too. This happened when she was a senior in high school. So she's basically fresh out of high school investigating her mother's murder. Yeah. And this is how many years, 12 years later? Yeah, she's still looking. She's still looking. Yeah, she never gave up. Every few months, she would call the sheriff's office looking for an update to see if there were any new leads. Never got a satisfying answer. Detective Hamilton says he's not surprised.
1: Because a lot of these people were under the influence at the time and gave conflicting statements about time frames, conflicting statements about who was there and who wasn't there, and conflicting statements about Karen. Just about everybody that was involved in it was under the influence of narcotics at the time these things were going on. So their recollections are skewed by their state of mind and their memories are not the greatest. So here's what we do know
0: about what happened between Friday night and that fight with her boyfriend and when Karen was found on the side of the road Monday morning. After the fight, Karen went to a friend's house, Jim Hunt. He is a known drug dealer. Jim let her stay at first, but then apparently she started to annoy him and his friends and customers it's not really clear exactly why, but Jim's house was known to be a place where a lot of people would just come and go all hours of the day and night looking for drugs. And there's speculation that Karen might have been bugging Jim's customers, like, Can I have a hit? Can you share a little? Yeah, and let's and let's take a pause here for a minute because you just
3: she's in this domestic violence situation. She's kicked out of her place. You know, she doesn't want to go home. She tried to, but you know, it just didn't work out. And then it sounds like she's truly in crisis at this point. She goes there and all of this information about how she was, at, you know, begging for a hit, doing this. I mean, I don't know how to describe it, but I mean, she she was a woman in crisis. Right. Exactly. And, and instead of them helping her, they were saying that she was annoying. Yeah.
1: So for some reason, she was annoying to Jim Hunt that we can establish and he was trying to get her out of there. So he had kicked her out of the house a couple times that weekend even had friends drive her to remote parts of the county and drop her off, and she still kept coming back to his house. At least some of the witnesses speculated that she was bringing unwanted attention to the house because she was fighting with everybody. At one point, she was outside naked running around, and they were trying to get her back inside before the neighbors called the police and that kind of thing. So they, they believe that that was another reason that Jim wanted her away from his house was because she was just bringing unwanted attention there.
0: But again, all of the witnesses that investigators were talking with were known addicts. They were likely under the influence when all of this was happening. So figuring out exactly what was happening at that night, even though there were tons of people at the house, was nearly impossible. On Sunday morning, around 9 or 10 in the morning, Karen was seen walking down a street in a lacy neighborhood. She wasn't really wearing warm clothing. So when a neighbor saw her, they were concerned. And they called police and asked them to do a welfare check, which they did just to make sure she didn't need any help.
1: And so a uh, Lacey police officer stopped and talked to her and she said, oh, I had a fight with my boyfriend and I'm, I'm just walking and I'm fine. I don't need anything. Well, he talked to her a little bit and found out who her parents were and said, let me try and call your parents for you. And she said, no, I, I don't want to go to their house. And, and she declined any assistance from him. She basically said she was fine and she appreciated it, but she, no thanks. He still called her mom anyways and tried to let the mom know hey, Karen's out here walking down the street and I'm concerned about her, but she wouldn't take a ride from me.
0: And this is one of those critical moments when the story could have changed. Mm -hmm. The story could have been very different. You have a woman in crisis the officer rightly does his best to talk to her to see if he can offer any help. Well, and almost she
3: declined. Be- beyond he went the extra mile. I mean, he figured out who her fa- I mean, can you imagine in Seattle like the police actually, you know, <laughs> right? calling to find out who your parents are and getting through to them and talking to them, but I mean, he can't make her get in his car.
0: Yeah, but there's some, you know, people who say, gosh, if he'd been a little more persistent if he'd offered her maybe information, maybe given her the address of a women's shelter or a phone number, you know, maybe. And, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. a lot of armchair quarterbacking on cases like this. But I think it's important to talk about because for anyone out there who might come across somebody who's in crisis, a lot of times they will decline offers of help because they don't want to be seen as needing that help, as being in crisis.
3: Mm-hmm. That's a hallmark of it. So, Kim, I looked up what are the warning signs of a mental health crisis, and it's an inability to perform daily tasks, rapid mood swings, agitation, and risk-taking or out-of-control behavior, which includes being abusive to self or someone else. They also say an isolation from school, work, family and friends, loss of touch with reality and paranoia. And based on all the information from the detective, it sounds like Karen was exhibiting almost all of the signs that weekend.
0: Yeah. So, you know, sometimes you just have to be a little more persistent than you might like to make sure that they really are okay. Well, eventually, Karen wound up back at Jim's place. Trouble started up again. Jim said Karen was again being annoying to him and his friends. And there was apparently some final blow up between Karen and Jim on Sunday night.
1: Multiple people agree that there was some kind of confrontation between her and Jim over the bathroom. Now that's where accounts kind of vary. Some people said that she was banging around in the bathroom. Other people said that she was in there for hours. Other people said she flooded the bathroom, but for some reason there was a fight between her and Jim and Multiple witnesses report that Jim busts in the door of this bathroom to get her out of the bathroom, including Jim's own statements. He admits this. And then she's somehow injured in that confrontation. All the witnesses describe it as a physical confrontation. Jim says that he, she just got hurt by the door accidentally hitting her. He didn't intentionally hit her. But everybody agrees there's a confrontation and Karen somehow gets injured. And then it's like I said, about five to six hours after this happened, that her body is found.
0: Jim told police that Karen left right after that fight. Some witnesses say that they saw Karen get into a brown truck. Another person says they saw her get into a
1: maroon SUV. But that witness isn't clear on what day it was, even if that was the same night or if that was a different night when they saw him get into the maroon SUV or if it was daylight out when they got when she got into the maroon SUV. So that we kind of discount that statement as being relevant to the same night. But again, it's hard to say because everybody's recollections are kind of jumbled at that point. And most of the witnesses say that when they left, she was still there and alive.
0: When Karen's body was found, there was no evidence that she'd been beaten, no big bruises or any other visible injuries, just that ligature mark around her neck.
1: She's found without much around her, just her body. And so it's pretty clear to them that it's a dump site, not the initial crime scene. And investigations start at that point even trying to identify who she was because she didn't have any identification with her.
0: There was no clothing or personal items for police to collect as evidence, but the medical examiner would later find several different types of DNA on her body. They ran those through CODIS. There was no hits in the database so several different dna patterns or what is that right yeah yeah. several different samples from from different individuals they won't say exactly how that dna was found whether it was under the fingernails or somewhere else on her body they want to hold back though exactly where they got those dna samples from because that's part of the information that they're holding on to so that if they do have a good suspect they can, like we've talked with detectives before, where they say, you know, we need something to know if it's going to be a false confession or a real confession. That's one of the pieces of information that they're holding back from the public. And while there were no eyewitnesses to the murder, there were reports of an old brown pickup seen at the dump site. Detective Hamilton says as investigators started looking for that truck, they ran into another dead end.
1: We have one truck it was associated that might be a fit, but that truck was destroyed and scrapped For scrap metal in like 2009, something like that. It does seem awfully suspicious that that vehicle was scrapped. Supposedly, the registered owner said that it had an electrical problem that couldn't be fixed, but it was awfully strange that that truck has disappeared.
0: Now, at this point, in case you're keeping track, we've got several people who could be persons of interest in this case. There's that drug dealer, Jim Hunt. There's the unnamed owner of that brown truck. There's Karen's boyfriend, who she'd been in a fight with a few days earlier. But through all the years, they have never been able to identify a suspect. They've always had this long list of persons of interest, and that's as far as they've been able to go in this case.
3: Well, in in a drug house, you've got a lot of people coming and going who are also in various stages of intoxication, which means they could have seen something or know what happened, but are claiming to not remember because they don't want to get involved or... They really don't remember. So that's got to be extremely frustrating for detectives. And how can they mitigate that? You yeah, know? I mean, what,
0: what can you do as an investigator? I mean, you can't force them to remember things they don't remember or that they remember wrongly because of their state of mind.
3: Yeah, and I think that it's kind of scary that uh, Carly, I'm sure this was her first stop when she was going to investigate her mom's murder, was Jim Hunt's place. And, you know, it sounds like there were some unsavory characters
0: there. So Carly has, over the years, like we mentioned, really been pushing to keep this case relevant, to keep it in the eye of the investigators. She's had a hard time doing that because there just haven't been that many leads. But she did have a big breakthrough about a year ago when the case was picked up by CrimeCon to do their crowd solve portion of their conference. And that's where they get a bunch of experts together from all over the country, get a bunch of citizen sleuths together, get all the details from the case, the investigators, the witnesses, everybody together in one room for several days and try to work through the case and try to come up, you know, with a break in the case. And they started to feel like they were making some headway in part because of that DNA that they had gotten off of her body. There were several different samples of DNA that did not belong to Karen. They couldn't identify them at the time. They just knew they weren't Karen's. And some of the DNA was even, you know, a mixed sample where it had several different people mixed together. And so there's some lab work that's happening right now to try to differentiate those samples, pull them apart mm-hmm. so that maybe they can do some additional testing on the DNA. It was something that was actually offered during the crowd solve event, but the detective says they decided not to take them up on that offer at the time because I just didn't feel like it was fair to all of the other murder victims who didn't have that opportunity.
1: Uh, we declined to accept any kind of uh, monetary contributions because we don't want to put any kind of priority on somebody just because they have the ability to pay for it. So, you know, we work on all kinds of different cases and we don't want the appearance of being influenced by the money. And we also don't want to set a precedence that if you have the money, then your case gets bumped to the front of the line kind of a, a thing.
0: So the genetics that they need to do in order to try to identify this, this DNA that was on Karen's body isn't cheap. It's not easy. It's not cheap, which is part of the reason why they declined the money from the CrowdSolve event to do the DNA testing. But there is some good news. The state of Washington Attorney General's office has a new fund that is available to police agencies to use for this sort of testing, the sort of DNA genetic testing. So there's a chance that they might be able to, to use that funding in order to get this case solved but it's not the only one that's on their list that they would like to use that funding for. Well, so, what, how do you decide whose case is the most important? Who's the one at the front of the line?
3: Well, what do you think? Do you think they should have taken the money to do the the DNA testing for this case, or where, where do you land on it's that? That's
0: a tough one. That's a tough one. I mean, I get where they don't want to set a bad precedent, but at the same time, like by any means necessary if we can solve this case. You always have people who, you know, if they have deep pockets, they can offer rewards for information leading to an arrest. This has been happening for decades, if not centuries. Mm -hmm. It's really nothing new. I mean, I guess the only new thing is that instead of the money going towards a reward, the money would go towards DNA testing. But money has always been a factor in investigations. Well,
3: and it's so random with different cold cases. Why do they get the attention and other ones don't? And so I think that they should take it on an individual basis. And if you've got, you know, a, a company that's willing to pay for it so that they this family can get some justice, I think that they should absolutely do this. Now, I'm
0: just curious, was Karen sexually assaulted? No, that is another interesting caveat to this case is that, you know, you would think with the way that she was left naked. There would be an indication of a possible sexual assault, but they say no, they tested and she was not attacked in that way. There was really no evidence of any kind of physical attack. She didn't have bruising. She didn't have any cuts, scrapes, really nothing other than the ligature around her neck.
3: And sexual homicide is hard to define. Some guys get off by the act of murder itself. Law enforcement has defined two main types of offenders, those who are motivated by anger or revenge and those motivated by a sadistic sexual desire. So even though physically there's no evidence of a sexual assault, that doesn't mean the crime wasn't sexually motivated. And also another clue in this case is the location. It's more
0: likely that a local would know this was a well-known dumping ground for garbage and beat up cars. And like the detective said, there's some indication that whoever committed this murder actually did have some respect for Karen because they left her somewhere she would be found quickly and didn't do any nefarious things to her body left her relatively unscathed.
3: I kind of was like a li- balking a little bit about that when he said that the whole thing. Because, I mean, they're laying her out naked with her head on a car seat in the right by a landfill. But they're lifting
0: I mean, her head off the ground, off the gravel, so her head is propped up the way that you would if you wanted to be comfortable when you were laying down. So I could see where there was care taken there. I mean, yeah, it's a murder, okay? Yeah, like, yeah. it is a crime. But there's a sense that whoever did this put some thought into it and and at least a tiny bit of care.
3: Yeah, I'm not feeling that. I feel like it's just atrocious. I mean, I know you feel it's atrocious too, but I don't know what the reasoning was, but it just I I know you have to look at each one of those things to try to kind of figure out like what happened. But I think Let's the feeling is together. like
0: the person whoever did this knew her yeah, Had I mean, some kind of connection, emotion, feeling for her. If it was a random stranger, they probably wouldn't have taken the care to do that. So I think that's where the care comes in. That's where the, you know, the thoughtfulness comes in. Not necessarily they weren't an evil bastard, but just yeah, an evil know, bastard I, with a connection to Karen.
3: Yeah, I know that what you're saying when people when they find bodies that are covered with like a blanket or something. I get that, but it just, I don't know. It just, feels
0: wrong it, to say that, right? Yeah, it does. Yeah. And it
3: just doesn't feel like there was any care,
0: you know? Well, in this particular case, the detective says that they really feel like they are close to solving it. That like if they just had a couple of more details, this would all fall into place. So he wanted us to put out a message that if you have any information about the truck that was described as smaller, tan or brown Older truck with a camper shell, possibly an orange stripe down the side, like one of those old Datsun kind of pickup trucks. One witness mentioned it, but they haven't really been able to identify that truck. Like they think they might have found a truck that was, you know, matches the description, but they could never really be sure about that. Also, if anybody has seen any other vehicle that was in that area of where Karen's body was found around that time, just please come forward. Call the police. There are rewards that are available for information leading to an arrest. You can remain anonymous, as usual. Contact Crime Stoppers, and we'll put that information up on our website.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the family has. I think it's like a fifty thousand dollars reward.
0: Yeah, and there's it, there's actually like a separate one thousand dollars reward from Crime Stoppers, and then a fifty thousand dollars reward from the family. You know, and the interesting thing about the crowd solve opportunity that they had that's a real opportunity to solve this case. Because in fact, the other case that they were going to do at CrowdSolve that year, they didn't end up doing because there were new breaks in the case. Yeah, it's a it's another missing mom
3: case. They've never found her body. Her name is Nancy Moyer. And according to to court documents, a neighbor called 911 and confessed July 9th, 2019. So she was, this happened in 2009. But all of a sudden, that summer, 2019, this guy calls and, and confesses. He later recants that same day, hmm. but but it caused them to be like, "Wait a second, hold the phone. We don't, you know, we don't want a bunch of hands touching this case because we could be solving it soon." And so that's where when um, Detective Hamilton was like, "Hey, I've got this other case," and that's what's really, I mean, one of the things not only with Carly but. Mickey Hamilton, the detective, who basically has taken this on. He's not even, it's not even assigned, he's not even assigned to this case, and he just keeps at it. And I just think that, you know, where maybe there were some other cracks in the beginning about the investigation, he's like coming up in the rear and saying, Hey, I want to solve this. And so Carly has tons of praise for this detective, and it sounds like rightly so.
0: And before we wrap up this episode, I just want to go back one more time and talk about who Karen was because it's really easy to latch on to this idea that she was a drug addict. And so, you know, stuff happens when you're in that kind of a community. But she was also a mom. She was also a daughter. She was also a sister. And she was a lovely woman. She was gorgeous, like
2: drop dead gorgeous, but not just physically. I mean, like, on the inside too. And because she was just all around beautiful, it just made her stunning and amazing. Like, her her laugh was hilarious. She's the only one that could snort and make it look cute and feminine.
0: She had bold makeup styles and hairstyles, but she sure pulled them off. I could just picture her laughing and snorting with her, you know, perfect hair and makeup. And I mean, what, what a picture of a wonderful mom. And a, a true
3: testament her daughter
0: has given her. I mean... Carly and her family's
3: pain is a real reminder of the reality that it's not just the murder victim who loses their life, but the rest of the family is never the same again. Add to their pain is how their mother's character was trashed. What Carly just said about her mother in that cut is a testament to how much her mom meant to her, despite issues throughout her childhood and how the family rallied together to help support Karen and her children. And that keen in Carly's voice at the beginning of the show and her unwavering quest to find her mother's killer, even risking her own personal safety, is the takeaway here for me. And then from the 30,000-foot view, you know, our country needs to do a better job at creating a safety net for people in crisis. Karen obviously was. And a mental health crisis can be terrifying for both the person experiencing it and the person who is trying to help them. I know this was the case with my cousin, Jimmy, who I have such fond memories, my favorite cousin, us growing up together. We were he was two years older than me. and I idolized him. And then in middle school, something changed and he eventually became addicted to drugs. And I'm not going to go into that whole story because this is about Carly's mom and Carly's story. But I understand how difficult it is to see someone that you love go down this 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 hole and, and, and nobody knows how to help. There's no, it doesn't feel like there's anybody out there that can wave a magic wand and say, okay, this is what we can do. And then, you you know, Jimmy's mom was a single mom and she was overwhelmed and didn't have resources to, to help him. And ultimately he ended up taking his own life, but my aunt has never been the same again. And so we will have a list of organizations that are resources for not only the person in crisis, but for someone who recognizes that a person could be in crisis and how to help.
0: Yeah. So again, we'll have more information up at sceneofthecrimepodcast.com. We'll have some pictures of Karen and her family and links to how you can get in touch with Crime Stoppers if you have any information or know someone who might. So Carolyn, what's coming up for next week?
3: So next week, we'll go to Aberdeen, home of Kurt Cobain and quite possibly the most prolific serial killer you've probably never heard of. This is in Washington state history. I don't even know about nationally, but in Washington, that's saying a lot, that he he could be (laughs) the most prolific. He had a nearly perfect way to get away with murder until there were just too many bodies. Billy Ghoul, known as the Ghoul of Grays Harbor, and that story's up next week.
0: Oh, ghoulish.
3: I know, his last name is Ghoul. And he
0: is a ghoul. Yeah. Yeah. I'm Kim Shepard with Carolyn Osorio, and this is The Scene of the Crime.